Thanks, guys. Uh, can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open? Um, although, as Mike has said, we're not going to be uh, unpacking verse by verse through a passage. Uh, we're starting a series uh, over January and into February on um, how we're going as a Christian. So let me ask the question. How well are you doing as a Christian? I once asked a friend of mine how he's going as a Christian and he replied that he wasn't a very good one. Now, in talking to him, he started to realise that he thought Christianity was all about living morally well. Uh, as our conversation continued, it worked out, he worked out that he wasn't only not living morally well, which is not the focus of Christianity, he turned out that he didn't actually understand what Christianity was all about. He occasionally had come to church and he'd struggled with the morality. But that's not the question I just asked you guys, because you're here. As a Christian, let's assume that you're someone who follows Jesus, although I know that might be an assumption that's not, you've told me, you've, that's not where you're at. But let's assume you're a Christian. That is someone who already follows Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Someone who understands grace and mercy and forgiveness. How are you going? Well, generally at church we just say, fine, thanks, Rick. You know, how's life? Fine. And sometimes we think we are fine because we've just compared ourselves to the people around us. I said this morning the person next to us and realised that might have been their spouse, so that's, we wouldn't want to say we're going good compared to them. But uh, certainly the person, let's say, in the row in front, if, if there is someone, um, we're going fine, thanks. Now you know, you're trying to work out who's, you, who, who's been compared to who, aren't you? Have a look around if you want to. When we do that, though, we know what we're doing on the surface, but what we're feeling on the inside is something quite different, isn't it? We know that things are not as good. Uh, we set a confession. We struggle with sin. We know what our ungodliness looks like. Um, if today I'd sent out an email, for those who are not regulars here, I sent out an email often on Saturdays. It was late last night or late for me at any rate, it was about 9.30, um, and um, I just let people know what's happening on Sunday. But if I'd sent out an email and said, listen, for the service, we are going to replay your whole life history, every thought that you've done, had, everything that you've said, every action that you've done, and we're just going to watch it up on the big screen behind me, would you have turned up? You'd have contacted your lawyers. Let's say just the last seven days. Well, I think you'd have still contacted your lawyers. I would have contacted my lawyers and sued me. How dare I put that stuff out? Well, God knows. God knows what we're like on the inside. And sometimes as we start a new year, we know what we struggle with. We know what we're like on the inside and we might be feeling rather tired. Because let's be honest with yourself, this year Pink Floyd summed it up very well. You're one day, you're shorter of breath and one day closer to death. What a good theme to have on the first day of the year, isn't it? Well, it is a new year and we might have set ourselves some goals. So what's a healthy goal for us as Christians to be setting? And this is where our series comes in. How can you and I pursue a real and deeper relationship with God? How can you and I pursue a real and deeper relationship with God that grows us as followers of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about veneer changes. 
I'm not planning to, you know, have plastic surgery or something stupid like that. Sorry if you've had plastic surgery and you needed it. Not all plastic surgery is stupid, is it? I'm not talking about surface change stuff. I'm not talking about an intellectual growth in the next couple of weeks. I don't want you just to grow intellectually. And I'm not going to say, listen, you just need to turn off the TV, turn off the computer and get up at four o'clock in the morning and pray harder. That's not the advice I want to give you and me as we pursue a deeper relationship with God. I'm not planning to add to your daily routine. Um, We're going to unpack where we're going as we ungo there. There's no point me giving you the whole sermon series and then starting it. But I do have a few disclaimers at the beginning. Uh, For the series, we're actually going to be following a book. Uh, A book that throws us really well at the Bible, but a book. Uh, And the book is titled Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners. And I figured that included you and I. So I thought it'd be helpful. It's a book I actually read this last, the last year, sorry. It's written by a bloke called Dane Ortland, And it's really helpful. Uh, You might like to grab the book and jump ahead of me. You're more than welcome to do that. Uh, But don't think that's an excuse for not coming on Sundays. But I I need to, part of this first disclaimer is that I'm not planning to reinvent the wheel lots as we go through this stuff. I'll mostly be following some of the stuff that Dane raises. But I'll be bringing it to bear on my heart and your heart. Because it's not an intellectual exercise. And as you've just picked up, my second disclaimer is this. I'm not going to be giving you lots of my own sermon illustrations about how wonderful I am and if you just follow Rick your relationship with God will be deeper and stronger I'm a fellow traveler like you are so what I want to pray as we look at God's word together our Lord and our God uh, we do want a deeper relationship with you we want to know you more we want to live for you more and we pray that through your word And by the work of your spirit in our lives, you'll keep shaping us. We pray that over this series, we might grow deeper in our relationship with you. We pray that this won't just be an intellectual thing, but Lord, that you'll change us right to our very core. And we ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, it it seems sense to me, it certainly seems sense to Dane as he was writing his book, that if we're going to write about how, or sorry, if we're going to look at how we pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus, we start by looking at who Jesus is. And we already think we know, don't we? We've done that bit. We did that last week and the week before and the week before that. We know who Jesus is. Why don't we start with something different that I might have forgotten? Well, can I suggest to you, that if you're anything like me, it's not hard to domesticate Jesus and water him down. Uh, We're going to be looking at seven characteristics of who Jesus is and they're worthwhile looking at. And as we're going to look at why we go back to Jesus and unpack it, Jesus, and you think, well, I've been a Christian for 90 years and I've been to Bible college for most of those 90 years. Why would I expect to learn anything when uh, in a sermon series that looked at Jesus for 20 minutes? Let me just point you back to a passage of scripture we've just read. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, what was Paul going to do? He's going to preach the unsearchable, that is, boundless riches of Christ. 
That's what he's going to do. You see, our biggest danger is we think we know it all. We've slotted Jesus into the box that suits our life or the shelf. And the scriptures say that Jesus is not confined by us. He is unsearchable. He is boundless. And so if that's what scriptures say, I think it's very reasonable for us to reflect again on whether we've domesticated him. So it's worth your while as a Christian for 200 years to keep planning to unpack more about Jesus. And we don't unpack more about Jesus by doing anything other than going back to his word, which is what we're going to be doing. Today, we're just going to look at seven things about Jesus. There could be more, but that would take longer. And I figured we do want to have a break between the 1st of January and the end of December. So what is the first one? Well, know this, that Jesus rules. Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, has supreme authority over the entire universe. Now that's just a truth that we just say regularly and the water off the duck's back, we move on. Yes, Rick, tell me something I didn't know. Matthew 28 verse 18 says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's not me speaking, it's Jesus speaking. Now, Jesus is not up in heaven hoping that eventually more than 50% of the population will vote for him so that he can beat Satan. This is not an election process. There's not a democratic vote happening in heaven at the moment. Jesus rules everything. Nothing falls outside the authority of Jesus. So what does that really mean? We just said it, or I did at any rate, because scripture did. But what does that really mean when the rubber hits the road in our world? Everything that happens in this church and this denomination and in followers, the lives of followers around the world happens under the rule of Jesus. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And let's take it broader because it said everything, not just the church. Jesus rules what's happening everywhere in his entire world. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. So, everything that's happening is happening according to God's plan. And that's sometimes hard to swallow, isn't it? Maybe it confuses us. But do you really reflect on that? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus rules. That should shock you in a way, or at least cause you to wonder, why does Jesus do some things the way he does? We think we know better from our perspective, don't we? We think we could offer him some advice, even as Christians. But Jesus rules supremely over all things, in heaven and on earth, and that, of course, includes the world stage. I don't know whether you watched the news last night. Didn't bother. Didn't watch it this morning. But that includes whatever happened last night or this morning. It includes internationally. Jesus is not the God of a small group of people. He's the God of everything. 
and it includes you and me at a personal level. Let's just bring it down and focus on where we think the world centre revolves around. That's me, not you. Jesus says that he knows me and he, know, he rules me. And Jesus, because he rules, do you remember this in the kid's spot that was teaching the parents and those people who are not parents, that God rules over me and because he rules over me, he will one day bring me to account. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. That movie that's been playing through over my left shoulder, the one that none of us would want to see, nothing is hidden from his gaze. He knows the very motives of my heart and yours. Now, that's a good thing to reflect on, isn't it? And the problem of sermons is, wouldn't it be nice to have 10 minutes of silence where you go off and cuddle a tree and reflect on it? No, we can't do that. That's a good thing about reading the book. You'll probably need to go and grab it. But it's worthwhile thinking, isn't it? I've got a sermon summary. It's, it's there. You can actually just reflect on this. Jesus rules over all things. He's not your life coach. He's not your spiritual mentor. He's not your religious advisor or your problem solver. We can domesticate him as our personal servant. But he rules over everything, us included. What we should do is be gobsmacked. Uh, More theologically, you might think of, you'd be filled with fear and reverent awe that that Jesus knows you and rules over you and will one day hold me and you to account. The supreme rule of Jesus should actually cause us to start shaking. The one we follow will one day speak and the world will be silenced. Um, if you would like to, you might like to reflect, spend some time this coming week. Maybe there's six of these or seven of these and the, each evening you could spend time reflecting on one of them. The first one is worthwhile reflecting on is the fact, the reality that Jesus rules over everything. Can't do that now. Let's move on. The next characteristic of our boundless, unsearchable Jesus is worthwhile us reflecting on is the fact that he saves. And we already know that because we've come here a few times. And we might be tempted to say, let's just move on from this one, Rick. I know what Jesus does. I can quote you a memory verse. But let's just pause a bit and move a little slower. Because sometimes I and you can domesticate this Jesus who saves us. And what we really do when we're talking about saving and domesticating Jesus is we talk about Jesus who helps us, to help save us. Um, when I go four-wheel driving, well, not very often when I go four-wheel driving because I drive a Land Cruiser, I get bogged, sometimes, occasionally. Well, anyhow, we can sometimes think of when Jesus saves us as a bit like when we're bogged in our cruiser. All we need to do is give some, someone to give us some better advice on driving. You know, or lower the tyre pressure and you'll be able to drive out of this. Or actually engage four-wheel drive and, and you'll be able to drive out of it. And so we think when we're trapped or even saving, it's a bit like that. Jesus needs to just give us some advice on how we can get ourselves out of the bog. But that's not how the Bible speaks about it, is it? Not at all. You see, 
God speaks about our need to be saved as we are dead in our sins. If you take it to the four-wheel drive analogy, the bog has reached the roof level. Not the floorboards. And you're still, got, uh, you're still upright. It's not you rolled your car. God, the, we, are, we are bogged down to the roof. You see, when we need saving, we are dead in our sins. If you take it to the life analogy, the life uh, saver analogy, um, you know, it's not that we need a life boy rest thrown out to us. That's not what the problem is. We don't just need a bloke on a jet ski to come and tow us out of the current and we'll be able to, you know, make it back to shore ourselves. We're on the bottom. You know that parable we looked at from Luke, that's Luke 7? You know the 50 denarii sinner and the 500 denarii sinner? And the Pharisee thought, well, I'm pretty good. I don't really have a problem here. And Jesus tells the story, the parable, so that the people there, including Simon the Pharisee, might know that he's absolutely dead. There's no hope of him paying the debt ever. Whether he is a 50 denarii sinner or like the woman who knew that she was a terrible sinner, a 500 denarii sinner, none of them could repay the debt. They were dead in their debt. The parable was to remind us the fact that we are dead in our sins and we need forgiveness 100%. So we're not drowning, we're on the bottom. And guess what? We've talked about that's our problem. What does Jesus do? He saves. I wonder whether you thought about that's the level you've been saved from. It's easy just to domesticate him and think, well, I'm mostly good, I've just got a few problems here, here and here. I hope Jesus can help me with that one. Let's go on. Jesus befriends us. John 15, verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm no longer going to call you my disciples, I'm going to call you my friends. Jesus, the sovereign ruler of all the universe, who needs to save us because we're dead in our sins, what does he say? I want you to be my friends. Not my servants, my friends. He's not, he's not too important just to pass on over us. He's not too focused on other things to miss that we even exist. He's the one, like a friend would do, who draws near in our time of need. He's, like, he's a friend who knows our very thoughts and loves us anyhow. Don't, don't water that down to think that Jesus pats on the back and says, Rick, you're doing a great job here. Sometimes our friends actually, because they love us, say, actually, you need to change this bit here and I don't think you're going very well there, but I love you anyhow. That's what a friend does. What was Jesus often accused of uh, when he walked the earth? Being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I know that I'm one of those. And that is good. And people found it impossible to reconcile that a God who was sovereign over all would want to have anything to do with miserable, persistent, ungrateful sinners like you and I. But Jesus is a friend of sinners. Isn't that good? Let's press the pause button and reflect on that sometime during the week. What else is Jesus like? Well, he perseveres, doesn't he? 
He doesn't just say, I'll be your friend while you do the things that make me feel happy. But if you give me grief too many times, I'll just distance myself from you. Jesus is a friend who continues to remain our friend despite the stuff playing over my left shoulder there that shows what we're really like on the inside. Jesus is a friend who will not ebb and flow like we do. He's not distracted by the things that we might get distracted about. When things get tough, he doesn't give up on us. Have you reflected on that? Jesus befriends me and you and Jesus perseveres in our friendship in a way that, well, you and I never do. We often speak about Jesus' death and resurrection uh, on the cross. What a great thing to speak about. I'm not apologising for that. But sometimes I don't always remind you of what Jesus is doing now. Let me tell you, he's not recovering from a late night. He's not bored at home, hoping for excitement to come, just waiting for the second coming so things rev up again. What is Jesus doing right now? Well, Romans tells us, verse 38, chapter 8, verse 34, that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. That's pretty good, isn't it? What does interceding mean? Apart from being a big word I don't often use. Jesus is there speaking to the Father on your and my behalf. He's, what you might say, praying for us. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Like, have you reflected on that reality? That God who knows what we're like, he's standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf and yours. Maybe yours a little more than me, because I'm not such a sinner. No, no, not at all. Equally, he need, I desperately need Jesus as well as you do. Because since I've been converted, what have I struggled with? living the life that is worthy of the gospel, the same as you. And what do I desperately need? I need someone to speak to the Father on my behalf about my ongoing problem of sin. You reflected on that? Probably not as much as you should have done because I haven't spoken about it as much. What a good thing to be reminded of, that Jesus is there interceding on our behalf to the Father. Press the pause button again if you'd like and reflect on that on another day in the week. Here's something great about Jesus. He's coming back. What a great truth to know. Uh, We sometimes talk about the return of Jesus as that something the Bible says but probably won't happen. Unless, of course, you come from a particular denomination known as Baptists and they spend, I've got a grandfather, great-grandfather, no, grandfather, who spends all his time trying to predict the date. Poor bloke. Soon he'll be there. One day Jesus will return, won't he? It's not an academic truth. People at the other end of the scale might just think, oh yeah, that'll happen, I don't need to worry about that. But you and I should know with a confident expectation that one day Jesus will return. You can bet your bottom dollar on it. On a time in history, in world history, I'm not going to give you the date, so don't, don't, don't get your pen out. At a certain month, at a certain time, Jesus will return. There won't be anyone to write about it when he does, by the way, and there won't be rubbish movies made by Hollywood. The date is fixed. When it happens... Everything will be drawn to a conclusion and people will stand before God, accountable before God. 
And when Jesus returns, he won't be interested in your reputation. Jesus won't be interested in whether or not you're at church this morning. Jesus won't be interested in your career achievements or maybe your bank balance or your family achievements. Jesus won't even be interested in your moral goodness. He knows what you're like on the inside. What will Jesus be interested in? Well, your spiritual condition, won't you? What, What you've done with Jesus, whether you've accepted his offer of forgiveness. Now, just in case you're not alive when Jesus returns... You could put your date down as the date of your last breath. It's the last opportunity for for you to do your business with God. That's the date that will matter for your eternity. But know this, Jesus will return. It's not a guess. It's a sure and certain hope. And followers of Jesus will be with Jesus in heaven, enjoying his unfathomable goodness and the blessings of heaven that you and I cannot imagine how good they are yet and we'll enjoy them for all eternity. Have you pressed the pause button and would you like to reflect on that for another, another day? How good is that? And the last one, just so you know I'm coming to an end. Uh, Jesus is tender towards you. In fact, the only time that Jesus describes what he's like in the Gospels, no, it's probably the only time he describes the condition of his heart, is that he's gentle and lowly. We often remind ourselves of that in the lead-up to the communion service. Um, Dane Ortland, remember the guy who's written this book that set the series for over our summer? He's written another book. That's not next year's series. So you can read that one yourself. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Before that, he said, come to me, all who are weak and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, and I can't remember the rest off the top of my head, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, Jesus is not speaking about this part of him that pumps blood. He's not saying my heart's giving out. It's not pumping as well as it should do. It's a reflection of his character, his attitude towards people like me who are weary and burdened. If you had the idea that Jesus is some mean ogre up in heaven just waiting for you to have stuffed up the last time that he can put up with because he would love to press the smite button, that's not how he is. He is gentle and lowly in heart. That is not the Jesus of the Bible, if you've got that view in your head. It's sometimes popularised like that, isn't it? When I'm filled with sin and shame, when your video is playing, you want no one to see it, Jesus will not leave you and abandon you. He will reach out to you. He is gentle and lowly in heart. We could have another whole sermon on that topic again. I hope you've picked up a few truths that are good for you to reflect on over this coming, well, let's say the rest of your life about who Jesus is. They're not truths to stay up here. So if you want them just to stay here, that's great. But lots of things in my head don't do me any good during the week because I don't act on them. The truths about who Jesus is need to permeate to your very core to your heart 
they will and if they if you will let them do that if i let them do that they will strengthen and deepen our walk with jesus they will help us understand those boundless unsearchable riches at another deeper level how about i pray our lord and our god we thank you We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in your deep love you have called us to know Jesus and you've made it possible for us to know Jesus through the work of your spirit and the revealing of your word in our heart. Lord, we thank you that we can know Jesus through the work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, we pray that over this coming week, over this coming year, over the rest of our lives, however long that might be, we might actually pursue not more knowledge, but a deeper relationship with you. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.